The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome back. Spring is in the air. And that means spring cleaning. Is that what you're up to? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's the excitement of my weekend these days. <laughs> so I did a lot of cleaning, and it's quite satisfying to look at your clean chandelier at the end. <laughs> yeah, I did a little bit of that too, but I got to admit, I got my bike out. It was that kind of weekend. A little windy, a little windy and cool, but it felt good to be back in the proverbial saddle. So that's good. So anyway, we're back at it, and we have a special guest. And I want to underscore special because I say that all the time. Every time we have a guest, every guest is special. But this guest is doubly special because Martha Hall Findlay, Chief Sustainability Officer at Suncor Energy, has the special honor of being the only guest that has been on twice. You were with us last time in December of 2018, over 100 episodes ago, talking about Bill C-69 when you were president and CEO of Canada West Foundation. Remember when Bill C-69 was our biggest worry? Well, there you go. <laughs> Welcome, Martha. Welcome back. Thank you. And wow, does it feel like in some ways so much has changed and in some ways not. But a huge thank you. I am so honored to be your first repeat. And just a huge congratulations to both of you. The success of this podcast, the number of people who now say, oh, did you hear this on the ARC podcast? Did you hear Peter? Did you hear Jackie? And I just, I love it. And obviously your numbers are fantastic. So congratulations on the success that mm. you are enjoying. It's great. And as I said, it's a huge honor to be back. It's fun, although in a very different capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you for that compliment. We appreciate that. Let's start there. Tell us about your move to Suncor since we last talked. Well, I started in January of last year just before COVID hit. So you can imagine it was probably the most interesting first year of a new job I've ever had. She says somewhat tongue-in-cheek. It was an opportunity that I hadn't been looking for. You know, I was with the Canada West Foundation. Some of the folks listening know I have a history of being a real public policy nerd and really loved what we were doing at the Canada West Foundation and loved the team there and missed them very much. And at some point, the opportunity at Suncor came up. And let's just pause for a minute. The chief sustainability officer for an oil sand company. Like, just pause there for a second, because especially in some circles, as you can imagine, certainly some of the more global circles, where it's not oil sands, it's called tar sands, there's a very big eyebrow raise, right? Like, are you crazy? Why would you do something like this? And the reason this was such a really fantastic opportunity is to be able to, in fact, work on some of the hugely important public policy issues of how do we get Canadians to understand the importance of our resources? How do we get Canadians to understand better how we actually can do this really, really well and be world leaders? And, you know, we're going to talk about ESG and the opportunity to really talk about that global leadership in terms of ESG. And, oh, by the way, Achilles heel emissions. Mm -hmm. And I keep saying, look, we, of course, we're a really big emitter. The oil sands are really big emitters, especially in that proportionate to Canada's emissions. So we're definitely seen as a big part of the Canadian emissions challenge, no question. 
But as a result, or because of that, we are a huge part of the potential solution. And what we're really encouraged by is there are more and more people, including politicians in Ottawa, who are recognizing, you're not going to shut us down. That doesn't work, right? The only other way to really address reducing emissions is collaboration. And in the year, a little over a year that I've been at Suncor, the movement in that regard has really been fantastic. I'm hearing things from Ottawa, for example, that we would never have heard a year ago, and certainly not when we were doing C69 efforts. So it's been a really interesting year, and I am really, really glad to have made this move because it's an exciting time. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the things you're up to at Suncor. That's a great background. We'll talk a little bit about the capital markets and the pressure for ESG. Specifically, we want to talk about Suncor's greenhouse gas emissions reductions plans and what technologies you may be looking at. And finally, get some perspectives from you on the Canadian carbon policy. And there's been lots of news since December of 2020. Let's start with the capital market. So investors are obviously continuing to demand more information about the ESG risks associated with investing in oil and gas producers like Suncor. Just tell us, like, what kind of effort is it just to respond to all these requirements? And I know there's all sorts of different things, like the Task Force for Climate Disclosure, and certain investors want their data one way, and a different set of investors want it a different way. For sure. So there's the TCFD, there's FASB, there's GRI, there's the World Economic Forum and the International Business Council together with the big four accounting firms have come out with a set of metrics. But I have to tell you, every time, and sometimes you know this, Every once in a while, somebody in Calgary might roll their eyes and go, oh, gosh, another set of metrics. My answer is, this is our friend. This is a huge opportunity for Canada and Canadian companies to shine. I do think that COVID has really highlighted the importance of the S, the social, and the G, the governance aspects of this. Without question, recognizing our emissions challenge is huge. We know that. But as more and more people look at the whole range of issues associated with ESG, this is good for Canada and it's good for us. As we continue to reduce our emissions, it becomes even better for us. Then we can take that particular challenge and move it into perspective where we can actually look at the whole range of ESGs. There's a lot. A lot of companies are really frustrated. They don't know what to do. The good thing about Suncor is Suncor has been disclosing through its sustainability report, climate risk report, for years now. Suncor, long before I got there, was an award winner in terms of disclosure. So we know what we're doing. The key that I keep saying, and and there are two pieces to this. One is, you can be awesome at disclosure, but the key is, what are you actually doing? What's your performance? And unfortunately, a fair bit of the disclosure focus is on, are you disclosing? Well, that's good, and that's important to do. But you need to make sure that you have ways to determine, does the disclosure show performance? That's certainly one of the frustrations of this whole discussion about sustainable finance. And there was a piece out of Bloomberg Green a week or so ago, actually highlighting that some investors are getting a bit wary. One about companies hiving off certain activities so that they can qualify for green, the worry that you might be, a, gosh forbid, an oil company, but you hive off your wind operations so that you can get green finance for those. And the irony, of course, is the oil and gas sector in Canada is by far the biggest single investor in clean tech. You need financing to be able to finance these activities. Mm-hmm. 
But if you step back and say, but what are we actually trying to do? We're trying to reduce emissions. So there are two ways Canada could reduce all of the emissions associated with the oil sands. They could shut down the oil sands. Now, they can't, actually. There might be some who would like that to happen, but of course that's not going to happen. So if that's not going to happen, what's the next best way to reduce emissions? When you look at oil sands companies that are big emitters, what's the best way to reduce emissions? If that's really your goal is to reduce emissions, then we need to work with the emitters. And we're seeing a much greater level of interest and collaboration from governments, from Ottawa, for example, from other sources of financing, which I think is really encouraging because move away from the demonization of different companies and say, what are we trying to do? We are trying to reduce emissions. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like having seen drastic reductions in emissions in the United States. Wasn't because people were being vilified because natural gas was so cheap that it was replacing coal. Well, I know there are people out there that are upset. They say, well, that's still a fossil fuel. But fundamentally, we need to reduce emissions. We need to reduce emissions. And it strikes me that the oil sands being so centralized as they are so concentrated in their operations, effectively, it's like a manufacturing operation. The ability to reduce emissions in great quantity in relatively short period of time is opportune, if only it can be financed. And this is where the challenge is, because some of these things are not economically viable. Some of these are not revenue generating. So if you look at CCUS, and that's so much going on right now in Alberta and federally and other parts of the world, look at what other governments like Norway and other jurisdictions are spending huge amounts of money to build CCUS. They're doing that partly because CCUS does not generate revenue. And if it doesn't generate revenue, if it's the net cost, well, there's a limit to what companies can do. Doesn't CCUS generate revenue if somebody's willing to pay for the carbon mitigation? I mean, if there's a high carbon tax. It can. It can if there's a credit system that allows that to happen. We absolutely see that, Peter, in the United States. The 45Q mechanism has allowed that very thing to happen. But it's a significant piece of government funding. You know, you'll have governments here talk about refundable tax credit. Well, well, that's not the same thing. 45Q is much more equivalent to refundable tax credits, and it's much more flexible so that different parties can share the credit. We are still not clear what the credit system will be from the clean fuel standards. So yes, it can be revenue generating or it can justify its cost. But we're still some distance from seeing that. And overarchingly, there's no doubt in our minds it will still cost more than you would be able to see through that mechanism. It's not to say it's not important, but that's why you see jurisdictions around the world with significant government funding for some of these efforts. If you look at something like small modular nuclear, that could be really interesting as well. I mean, that could be just game-changing. Can you imagine Canadian oil sands powered by small modular nuclear especially in a country that has such a great track record in terms of nuclear regulation and nuclear safety, these zero emission oil, that would be very interesting. Right, because you can get the power and the heat off that. Or the alternative is you continue using hydrocarbons and capture the CO2. I I just wanted to ask you, so 45Q is basically you get a, a tax rebate, I think, from the U.S., right? It's much more like a refundable tax credit than just a tax credit so that you don't have to actually have profit before you build something like that. But it also has some different flexibilities that are very attractive. 
you know, with the Canadian Clean Fuel Standard, we'll get into that, but the idea is that the credits could sell up to $300 a ton, which should be enough to motivate you to do CCS. Are you saying that it's just because it's uncertain that ultimately the credits will sell that high? That's the problem. It's uncertain that the credits will sell that high. It's uncertain what will qualify as credit. It is uncertain what will happen politically. And not that we want to go into politics, but this was a big issue with C69 in the day, was we understand we need to have regulation. We understand where the world is going. But for gosh sakes, regardless of your political party, do not get into power and flip everything around. Okay, so that political uncertainty that you're not going to build a project that has a 20-year payout if you don't think the policy is going to have longevity. Exactly. Right. So that's not a plug for any particular political party. It is absolutely a plug for reliability and certainty when we're making 5, 10, 20-year capital expenditure decisions. Right. No, I don't think you're unique to that. These policies with the high carbon price are still uncertain, right? So that will stop people from investing. Let's switch to talk about Suncor's GHG emission reduction plans. Now, numerous major oil and gas producers have committed to aggressively reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. For example, things like 30% reduction by 2030, net zero by 2050, and even some of the majors saying they will also not only reduce their direct emissions, but emissions associated with using their fuels. So we've seen that from Shell and BP and others. Can you tell us a little bit about where Suncor is in terms of their emission reduction goals and how it compares to some of the majors? Sure. So we have not come out publicly with a net zero by 2050 goal. That's not to say we're not very much aware of where the world is going and where Suncor needs to go. On the contrary, our initial major target was to reduce our intensity by 30% between 2014 and 2030. And we're well on track for that. So we're very pleased with that. But as you all so know, the word intensity And I think that's still important, but what you're seeing with more and more companies is that they're talking about absolute, and to your point, they're talking about scope three. We're an oil sands company. That's a pretty tough thing to say. If you look into the details of some of those announcements, there's a reason why people, especially in the investing community, are starting to say, whoa, wait a second. Are they just saying this? What's the detail behind it? How do they know they're going to get there? And that's a huge issue for Suncor. I mean, our credibility depends on when we say we are going to do something, we need to be able to know that we're going to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, let's leave the scope three, in other words, the emissions that happen as a consequence of burning the end-use hydrocarbon products like gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, whatever. Let's just deal with the upfront stuff. Let's even limit it to the scope one, which is from your upstream operations. So... Reducing your carbon intensity by 30% by 2030, the detractors would say, well, that's all fine and dandy, but if you grow your production by 30%, then you haven't really accomplished anything because your emissions are still the same. So how do you reconcile all that? And that's exactly why people have an issue with the use of the intensity criterion. People are more and more Mm -hmm. looking at absolute, and we totally get that. Where the intensity is important is I just mentioned, imagine if small modular nuclear becomes a real opportunity and we could actually end up with oil produced in Canada with zero emissions. People will still say, yeah, but it's still oil. And my answer to that would be yes, but to the extent that the world is still needing oil and it will for a good time to come, I'd rather have zero emission Canadian oil than Saudi oil or somebody else's. This is where the ESG piece 
becomes a real opportunity for us. But do you think you get to the S and the G without having sort of full buy-in on what you're doing with the E? E is first, and then you get to the S and the G. No question. And I think that's one of the industry's big problems is that it's tried to deflect. Historically, the industry has said, yeah, we'll sort of emissions, but look at our S and G record. My approach has always been, you've got to deal with the elephant right up front. Yep. Yes, of course, we're big emitters. So how do we manage, whether in collaboration with governments, whether making things more financeable, how do we actually reduce our emissions in a real way? And when we are able to do that, then we also, oh, by the way, Canada and Canadian companies are also really pretty awesome on all of these other criteria. We'd love to be the preferred mm-hmm. source of oil. Yeah, you've got to have lower costs and a better product. I mean, that applies yeah. to any industry, and that's where things are headed. I want to just talk about that scope three for a minute, because as you know, in the United States, the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, is scrutinizing, I think it's Conoco and Occidental, on their scope three emissions and what they're doing. And it just strikes me that a lot of the pressure that's coming to bear on oil companies and yourselves as well is not so much as from government, but from actually the financial community and the financial regulators. And at some point, they're going to have to look customers in the eye, right? So we could just cut it all off. And what would happen? What would happen to school buses? What would happen to home heating? This is where my preference would be to have the conversation really much more We're doing everything we can. These are the things that we can do. These are the opportunities. But let's not forget demand. We supply demand. And when somebody says, oh, well, that was the argument that tobacco companies made, my answer is, actually, we don't spike our product with something that's addictive to make you want to buy more of it, right? You drive a car. Again, I think this is one of the positive things about COVID is a much greater recognition of the need to collaborate of customers, consumers, governments, and companies like ours that actually supply the product, we're not going to get very far if we keep sort of pointing fingers and this is your fault, this is your fault, this is your fault, as opposed to, okay, we have a really big challenge. How do we figure out how to do this collectively and collaboratively? Because we just can't pretend that that's going to stop tomorrow. Yeah, no, it's a good point, Martha. A lot of the actions that are being taken are not focused on reducing demand, which ultimately, you know, if you don't reduce demand, then someone else will just supply the oil if it's not Suncor. Hey, I want to also talk to you about the investments you're making in new energy, because a lot of these companies, the majors, are not only agreeing to reduce their emissions, but move more of their cash flow towards supporting clean energy. And I know you've been very active at Suncor with things like your Quebec biofuels facility, your aviation fuel company, the Green Aviation Fuel. We just learned last week that you have a equity investment in Savante, which is a new carbon capture technology. So tell us about that and how significant are those investments in the context of spending at Suncor? Well, they only come because we actually have the ability because of our base business. So that's just a fundamental piece. You can't invest if you don't actually generate the cash flow from your business in order to invest. The other thing is that we are right at the top of the show talked about how investors are asking for ESG, but they're also asking for a return. And we've been in the wind business for 20 years. We are absolutely looking at some of these particularly biofuels like Savante for carbon capture, but Lenzatech, Lenzajet. If we can actually manage 
sustainable jet fuel, that could be just game-changing as well. Enerchem, which takes not bioproducts like forests or canola or whatever, but actually takes municipal waste, that also is really exciting because of the circular economy aspect of that. So, of course, yes, we're investing in a variety of things like this. We're also looking at nuclear. We're also looking at pretty much all of the other options that are out there. We're one of the biggest producers of hydrogen in the country. So, of course, we're looking at what those opportunities might be. But we also have to make sure that we generate the income that our investors require and that, in fact, those other investments require. And so we're absolutely focusing on being as clean and as cost-effective in our base business, which is pretty good. With a certain level of price of oil, we get this misunderstanding that somehow oil sands are high-priced production when we're actually not, but we still need to produce. So our focus absolutely is on our best base business being as cost-effective and increasingly clean as we can, allowing us then to invest and look at some of these other potential businesses, both technologies that we can invest to reduce our emissions from our base business, but also potentially new technologies, new sources of energy that we might be able to sell. Yeah, it's exciting stuff that you've got going on. Back to the base business, a lot of the policies that are coming out of Ottawa are actually incentive to switch to those new businesses. For example, the carbon price, $170 a ton by 2030. There's the clean fuel standard starting in 2022. Several weeks ago, we had a biofuel expert on the program and talking about what that's going to do there. And I know you're, as you just said, you're active there. What's your position on these policies that are coming out of Ottawa, especially, you know, some of these big dollar per ton numbers that we're seeing on carbon? First, none of this is a surprise. I mean, to the credit of the folks in Ottawa, this is the kind of thing that they promised when they got elected, and that's their job. Suncor has been a supporter of carbon pricing for 20 years now. We don't object to the concept. We understand what's being done. To the extent that it can be used to allow financing of some of these emission reduction projects, then, hey, let's figure that out. Where we need to be careful, of course, is being competitive with other jurisdictions. So we do need to be careful about what's happening in terms of the United States. You know, we mentioned the 45Q regime. You can't just replicate it. Our tax system is different here. But if we want to be able to do CCUS, for example, on the scale that we're starting to see down south of the border, then we're going to need to compete in that regard in terms of credits, in terms of some of those other programs. No question. And then, you know, look at Norway, look at the United Kingdom. So we just want to make sure that we're not uncompetitive in that regard, but we can be competitive and achieve these climate goals at the same time. And that's the future of Suncor, is looking at and determining how we can be a successful business, competitive, while in fact reducing our emissions and doing everything else that we need to do from a, an environmental perspective, whether it's water, whether it's biodiversity, and of course the F and the G components of ESG. So, Martha, I know that the oil sands today, because they're a large emitter that's trade exposed, you know, there's a program in place that you only see a fraction of the total emissions. Yeah. But over time, if the goal is to get to net zero 2050, so I know you say Suncor isn't committing to that, but the federal government is talking about legislating that. Does it give you pause when you think about new investments even today? Because over time, you've got to think that the amount of your emissions that are exposed to price is going to increase and the cost for emitting is going to go up. So is it changing the discussion around new investments already? It has to. Of course it does. But as I said, if you 
put policies like these in place and we understand what the drivers are and what the goals are and we share. We understand that we need globally to reduce emissions and we understand we need to be a part of that. So how do we make sure that we can continue to have successful businesses in Canada that are part of the solution? And that is going to require some collaboration. It's not going to require standing up and saying, oh, get rid of this and get rid of that. It's going to require, okay, what's happening in the United States? So we have a carbon price that's going to go to $170 a ton. The United States does not have a carbon price. The United States has 45Q, which is encouraging the building of CCUS. The United States reduced emissions because of simply reduced price of natural gas. All of these factors affect the competitiveness of the Canadian industry. Again, I, like, I can't stress this enough. I think we're looking at an opportunity of collaboration between governments and companies like ours, our customers, in a much more, okay, how do we deal with this? And I'm actually very excited by it. I've spent time in politics. I have not seen or heard the kind of language that I'm hearing now about, okay, how do we collaborate? What are the impediments to collaboration now? I agree with you. I mean, there's a new tone that started emerging before the pandemic. Yeah. There was a bit of a, a shock with the early months of the pandemic. Now it seems to me the spirit of collaboration is coming back. But what are the impediments that you see? I'm going to say what's one of the drivers toward collaboration before I talk about the impediments, Peter, because I think certainly there are folks in Ottawa who have long been advocating shut the offense down. And, and there's still lots of people there. And you know, I understand why and not to vilify them. I just think understanding is important. But there are more and more people in positions of decision-making who are recognizing, one, that that's not possible. Two, we have a really big challenge in Canada. The government set its 2030 targets. It wants to beat them, for gosh sakes. It set its 2050 targets. Well, if you look right back to the history of making our Kyoto commitments, Canada's done a pretty terrible job at meeting those targets. And so you have more and more people who are realizing, oh, we actually need to make some changes in how we do things in order to reach these targets. So that's a real driver. One of the impediments will ultimately be politics. Jackie was asking about the challenges of $170 a ton. By far the bigger challenge is if you have successive governments that say, okay, we're going to get rid of it. Okay, we're going to put it back in. Okay, we're going to get rid of it. That's a real problem, is political flip-flopping. So we would much rather just, okay, where are we? And let's make sure that we can plan on that. And I do think that that forces some other behaviors that could be very interesting. Okay, well, I think we're going to wrap up. We could just keep going, Martha. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's exciting to hear some of the things you're up to. I was really encouraged to hear about your excitement around small nuclear reactors and their ability to maybe make zero emission oil sands. Forget about the net. We can just go zero right away. Mm -hmm. And the Savante deal. Yeah, and Savante as well. So thank you so much for joining the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me back a second time. Like I said, I'm really honored and uh, always just a treat, not only having a chance to speak with you, but hearing the two of you and keep up the great work. It's terrific. And thanks for our listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com. Mm-hmm.